0: You're unmuted.
1: This meeting will come to order. Welcome to the October 12, 2023 regular meeting of the Public Safety and Neighborhood Services Committee. I am Catherine Stephanie, Chair of the Committee, and to my right is Vice Chair Ungardio, and to my left is Supervisor Dorsey. The clerk is Mr. John Carroll and I'd also like to thank Kalina Mendoza at SFGovTV for staffing this meeting. Mr. Clerk, do you have any announcements?
2: Yes, thank you, Madam Chair. The Board of Supervisors and its committees are convening hybrid meetings that allow in-person attendance and public comment while still providing remote access and public comment via telephone. The board recognizes that equitable public access is essential and we will be taking public comment as follows. First, public comment will be taken on each item on today's agenda. Those attending in person will be allowed to speak first, and then we will hear from those who are waiting on the telephone line. The public comment call-in number for today's meeting is 415-655-0001. When prompted, enter the meeting ID for today's meeting. The meeting ID is 2663-593-6535. After you've entered the meeting ID, press the pound symbol twice. You'll be connected to the meeting, you'll hear the meeting discussions, but your telephone line will be muted and in listening mode. When your item of interest comes up and public comment is called, those joining us in person should line up to speak along the curtain wall, that I'll point out each time, and those on the telephone should dial star three to be added to the speaker line. If you're on your telephone, please remember to turn down the volume on your television and your computer, your listening devices, your radio, whatever you may be using to access today's proceedings. Alternatively, you may submit public comment in writing. You may send your written public comment via email to myself, the Public Safety and Neighborhood Services Committee Clerk. My email address is period-C-A-R-R-O-L-L at sfgov.org. Or you may send your written comments via U.S. Post to our office in City Hall. That is 1 Dr. Carlton B. Goodlett Place, San Francisco, California 94102. The Clerk's Office is room 244. And if you submit public comment in writing, I will forward your comment to the supervisors and it will be included as part of the official file on which you are commenting. There are no action items on today's agenda, Madam Chair. That concludes my announcements.
1: Thank you. Mr. Clerk, will you please call the first item.
2: Agenda item number one is a hearing on the findings and recommendations made in the human trafficking in San Francisco 2021 report.
1: Thank you. And colleagues, I was very much looking forward to having this hearing today. But unfortunately, the staff have um, at DSO um, at the Department on Status of Women have asked us to continue this, they have had a um, COVID outbreak. So um, we are not able to have the hearing today. As such, I do intend to continue this item to the call of the chair. Uh, If you don't have any questions, we can go straight to public comment on the continuance
2: very good we will take public comment now on agenda item number one do we have anyone joining us here in the chamber who has public comment on agenda one seeing none let's turn our attention to those who are connected remotely if you wish to speak on agenda item number one please I'll star three and madam chair I see that we have no callers in the queue
1: thank you public comment is now closed I'd like to make a motion to continue this item to the call of the chair
2: on a motion offered by chair Stephanie that this hearing be continued to the call of the chair vice chair and Guardia and Guardio I member Dorsey Dorsey I chair Stephanie aye. Stephanie i madam chair there is no opposition
1: thank you so much and will you please call
2: the next item just a moment agenda item number two is a hearing to receive information on how San Francisco law enforcement data dashboards can provide more robust user-friendly and anonymized online information on crime and law enforcement response through the various stages those being incident, arrest, intake by the District Attorney's Office, initiation of prosecution, sentencing, and disposition.
1: Thank you. This item is sponsored by Vice Chair Engardio, and I will turn it over to him.
3: Thank you, Chair Stephanie. and I'd like to thank the Department representatives who arranged their busy schedules to be here. Everything we want to fix in San Francisco starts with safe streets, but we can't fight crime with a spaghetti bowl of data. Solutions depend on good data, transparent and accessible crime data residents can trust. That's why I called this hearing to see how we can share crime data compared to other cities. Today, we will consider how our district attorney and police department can better inform the public. At a future hearing, we will look at the courts and the sheriff's department. The history of data access in our city is dismal. I moved to San Francisco in 1998 to take a job as a journalist. The first dot-com boom was happening. The first wave of tech had come to San Francisco from Silicon Valley. And my very first assignment 25 years ago was to write about a conundrum. How could San Francisco, the tech capital of the world, have such lousy technology in city government? Very little was online. Everything was still on paper. If you wanted information about something happening in the court, you had to page through giant ledgers in the clerk's office. In 1998, the area around Sarth Park and Soma was the center of the tech universe. It was called the Multimedia Gulch. And when my report about the difficulty of accessing City Hall data was published, the headline was Multimedia Zilch. Today, a similar article could be written. The headline wouldn't say zilch because there's been progress, but the headline might say Much Frustration with Ongoing Limitations. About the time I arrived in San Francisco, City Hall decided to create an integrated database called the Justice Tracking Information System. Known as Justice, it was for data sharing between public safety agencies. Back then, every agency had a different computer system that couldn't talk to each other. And Justice was going to manage the data sharing needs of the police, sheriff, district attorney, public defender, probation department, and the courts. But 25 years and tens of millions of dollars later, the system is still not complete. This matters because a lack of data communication can have serious consequences. The delayed justice system made headlines in 2003 after a woman was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. Domestic violence activists said the murder might have been prevented with better data sharing. How? The ex-boyfriend had served jail time for attacking the woman in the past. After getting out of jail, he assaulted her again, twice. But the jail history was not on record when the woman tried to get him arrested again. When he came back a third time, the woman was killed. More recently, former Sheriff Vicki Hennessy noted a police operation in 2019 that arrested 63 suspected drug dealers over six days. Yet 80% of the dealers were free within a week. Some were already on probation, arrested, and released multiple times. Without a fully operational justice database, Sheriff Hennessy said it was difficult to know when defendants were rearrested while waiting for a court appearance. She had to rely on time-consuming manual methods prone to error. So there are two types of data streams that need to flow well. Data that government agencies share with each other and data that is shared with the public. Justice is an example of data shared within the government, and it deserves its own hearing. Today's hearing focuses focuses on public-facing data, again, focusing on the district attorney's office and the police department. Public-facing data is important because journalists, researchers, public safety advocates, social justice advocates, crime victims, and concerned residents all have the right to know what is going on with our criminal justice system. As a former journalist, I know that good journalism is very effective at shining a light on the strengths and weaknesses of government. But the brightness of a journalist's flashlight depends on access to data. There are laws that require the disclosure of existing documents to journalists, but those laws do not require departments to regularly disclose and update data analyzing important metrics that tell the public how City Hall is doing. It's also important that we let ordinary residents have access to this data so that they don't need a journalist to do it for them. Ordinary residents should be able to go online and with a few user-friendly clicks, find out for themselves how well the government is functioning. When it comes to an important issue like crime, it is vital that we make as much of the data public as possible Is crime up or down? Which crimes? Are police making arrests? What does the police report say? Is the district attorney charging crimes? What is the end result of all those cases? A story in the media is only as accurate as the data the journalist has access to. Voters read news stories. Elected officials listen to voter sentiment when deciding policies. But voter sentiment is only as accurate as what people think they know. Transparent and accessible data is the only way for the public to truly know a situation, and a truly informed public can ask elected officials to enact the most effective policies. I requested that the Budget and Legislative Analyst at City Hall review the District Attorney's public-facing data dashboard and compare it to dashboards operated by other DA offices in California and throughout the country, I wanted to see which jurisdictions have the most robust information available to the public in a user-friendly format. Because if it was possible elsewhere, we should be able to do it here. We will hear from the Budget and Legislative Analyst Office today. They will tell us the results of their report. Public data dashboards began under former District Attorney George Gascon. They were a good start, but stagnated during the tenure of District Attorney Chessa Bodine. My hope is that District Attorney Brooke Jenkins can take it to the next level. Frustration with the DA's data dashboard peaked in 2021. It counted the number of charges filed, but it never reported the final result of the charges. Were they dropped, reduced, taken to trial for a win or a loss? Two years ago, local journalist Annie Gauss of the San Francisco Standard asked for the disposition memos that reveal the final outcomes of criminal cases. D.A. Bodine's office denied the request, saying there were no relevant public records to her qu- query, and if they did exist, those documents were privileged. Goss vented her frustration on social media. She said, quote, I can't emphasize enough what a load of expletive this response is. At a certain point, you gotta wonder why they're so adamant about keeping this info from the public. She said Bodine's office was, quote, ignoring the fact that they have a duty to disclose what is disclosable, which includes procedural and case details that are otherwise in the public record. So we have a different district attorney today, and I hope the office of Brooke Jenkins will put more crime data in the open, at least as much as her counterpart in Chicago's Cook County. The public data sets in Chicago contained anonymized information about every felony case processed by the prosecutor going back 14 years. They are divided into four stages of interaction, intake, initiation, sentencing, and disposition. Any journalist, researcher, crime victim, or member of the community in Chicago can easily analyze what the prosecutor is doing. The online experience is super easy. You don't need any technical expertise. San Francisco deserves this kind of data dashboard for every agency involved in criminal justice, from the police department to the courts. Justice reform is necessary, For it to happen, residents must feel safe. Residents must feel confident that public officials are doing their job to keep everyone safe. And that requires transparent and accessible crime data residents can trust. So this is the lineup for today's hearing. The first presentation will be from the President of the Northern California Chapter of the Society of Professional Journalists. Joe Fitzgerald Rodriguez is a longtime local journalist who will speak on behalf of his chapter members. We will hear from the journalists first to get a sense of what type of data they need, what's lacking, and how we can provide better access. And while today's hearing focuses on the district attorney and police department, we can also hear what the journalists need from the courts to help inform our follow-up hearing about the courts. Next, we'll hear from Fred Brusero, Director of Policy Analysis at City Hall's Budget and Legislative Analyst Office. He wrote the report that reviewed our district attorney's data dashboard and compared it to others in the state and around the country. With that overview, we will then hear from Edward McCaffrey, Chief of Policy for the District Attorney's Office, and Nora Gregory, the Data Director. They'll explain the current capabilities of their data dashboard and the work they're doing to expand it. Finally, we'll hear from Catherine McGuire, the Director of the Police Department Strategic Management Bureau. She'll explain how their public-facing data dashboard works. Myself. And the supervisors on this committee will be able to ask questions after each presentation. And then public comment will happen after all the presentations are completed. So Mr. Fitzgerald, you have the floor. Thank you.
4: Good morning, supervisors. A little strange to be on this side (laughs) of of this room, of this chamber, usually right over there. Uh, But I did get permission today from my employers who so graciously said that matters of uh, journalistic import, matters of uh, free speech and access and open government are of chief uh, uh, import to journalists and that I should be able to advocate on that for SPJ, which I'm happy to do today. So the Society of Professional Journalists, we represent journalists up and down Northern California. Uh, Our board and our Freedom of Information Committee, which is a committee within our chapter, uh, has investigative journalists, a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, uh, broadcast journalists, all sorts of folks, but many of whom report here in San Francisco and use that data that Supervisor Engardio mentioned, uh, geez, nearly every day. Uh, But as part of this, not only do I ask our own board members and our Freedom of Information Committee who are specialists in open records, but I also canvass newsrooms in San Francisco. I ask them, what is the data that you would like to see? What are the roadblocks that you come across? Uh, You may not be surprised to hear this (laughs) considering the BLA report, but one of the chief central things I heard back from was uh, demographic data and how that ties into the cases that we see in the DA's dashboard. I mean, think about the top stories in, in the news today that we've all reported on. Homelessness, uh, uh, crime in our communities, uh, fentanyl crisis. These are all things that have intersections with ethnic data, with demographic data. Think about the stories about uh, the Hondurans and uh, Honduras's role in our uh, fentanyl crisis wherever you stand on that, you would want journalists to be able to verify the veracity of many of these claims, to be able to look at the data and figure out, is this true? Is this all true? How much of this is impacting our community? What are the policy decisions we need to make? But in order to inform the public to do those things, we do need that data. Um, The BLA report was very revealing, especially in terms of Uh, what information we don't have that other jurisdictions do have. Uh, It was very revealing in terms of that lack of demographic data, which is mirrored in what I heard back from all of our journalists. But I thought I'd also broaden this a little bit, and Supervisor Angardio was so kind as to say that it was all right if we kind of went off on this little tangent here, and bring you into the life of a journalist who has to report on crime a little bit every day, right? Uh, I was talking to a journalist earlier. He says, well, if you're a cr- criminal justice reporter, you may start your day looking at the booking logs at uh, the sheriff's office. You're trying to see who's in there. Who who got arrested and for what? Well, then, you've got to, ch- to figure that out. Who, who, who was arrested for what and why? What was the circumstances around this? You have to go to the PIO of the SF Police Department and ask them t- to see if they could corroborate this and then uh, get you... Some data from the incident report read it to you verbally because they're not going to give you the paper police report. Not even redacted, not even with the information that legally needs to be redacted, redacted. They're just going to read it to you. They may do that. They may not. Maybe it's a busy day at the police department and they're not going to tell you anything about those people who were arrested, who you're tracking there. Happens. Busy days happen. Totally get it. Well, if you do happen to be so lucky to get that data, then if you want to continue following the lifetime of that arrest, then you have to go to the DA's office. And they may or may not give you the information you want to know about that arrest. You are, again, at the whim of the PIO. You may have some broad data that is on the dashboard. But you as a journalist have been dogging this PIO for for a long time. You then send in records requests. You're trying to figure out what's happening with this person who assaulted this woman on Market Street. What happened? We don't know. And we, we have to rely either on the PIO's grace or on public records requests that may take weeks, that may take a legal battle is this any way to report on the crime that is happening on our streets to the citizens that we all care about? This should not be a fight. We should all be on the same side here. Um, So you get that data, maybe. So let's, perfect world, you've gotten the police report stuff read to you, the PIO at the DA's office gets you some information. Okay, now you wanna see what happens in court. Now, I know, this is not necessarily your all's jurisdiction, not much you can do about the courts, but you can advocate you can ask. So I'm going to explain this. You go down to the court in person. You have to ask for the records by filling out a form. They're not online. They're not in a web portal. You have to fill out a paper form. And then you get an appointment where you can then look at the criminal records. Or you can get them mailed to you. (laughs) Snail mail. Because that's very helpful. Uh, Now, I love Those clerks down there, let me not say anything ill of those folks at 850 Bryant. They're doing God's work. They are awesome. But the system that is in place that they have to work in is difficult. It's difficult for them, it's difficult for us. We have to follow through going to the court time after time to figure out when the next court date for that person is. That's not even true in Alameda County. Go to Alameda County, look, Google right now, you're all at your laptops. Alameda County criminal records. And you know what? They'll pop up in a web portal. There is a whole calendar. You can see cases. It's really very easy. Gosh, very envious for people who are fully just looking at Alameda County crimes. Um, in San Francisco, it's not quite so easy. So this is the lifetime of following a criminal justice story from stem to stern for a reporter. This is a tussle this is a fight, this is not, this is not easy. But it should be easy. It should be easy, as Supervisor and said, not just for journalists, but for citizens. In a perfect world, they wouldn't need us to tell them any of this. They could just go look it up. And then we could be off reporting stuff that's harder, again, to find out. Um, Much of that uh, data would be helped. We have a whole list, a laundry list of requests from journalists we heard from. And I will submit it to you in writing to make it a little easier to track. Um, but the basic gist of it is being able to follow the lifetime of an arrest, um, having unique tracking numbers possibly to help track that person across different agencies, uh, having uh, the ability to download the full amount of data from the DA's website. I mean, they present all the data there, but you can't get it raw. If there's an error, you can't go investigate why that error happened. You have to go ask the PIO again, which is a roadblock to that data. Um, so there's many ways this can be reformed. I look forward to this conversation, I look forward to giving you more of this in detail in writing in, in the near future, and I am really thankful and
3: grateful for this discussion. Thank you all so much. I'm, I'm here for any questions you have. Thank you, Mr. Fitzgerald. Uh, I have one question on the police reports. Like, are, are those not public record? Is there like what is? Is there, like in the old days, you know, you, they were pr- pretty easy to obtain. Like, what, is it just a res- resistance to hand them over, or is there a, been a new policy? Yeah, I'm,
4: I'm, you know, I'm not a criminal justice reporter, so don't take this all as sacrosanct. Uh, and I'm sure there are people here who have more uh, 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 precise information about the legal aspect of it than me. But to my understanding from my discussions with reporters who do report criminal justice consistently, um, while they can, give the police report with some redactions, um, most often they opt to verbally recite the portions that they are legally able to release. One idea from a journalist that I solicited said, well, what if there was a portal every day with the arrests and the relevant portions that are able to be made made public on that portal? And you just could check it every day, like you check the booking logs for the sheriff's department. And there are parts that cannot be released from that police report. Sure, uh, Supervisor Dorsey would know better than I, <laughs> considering his work, and, and parts that can. But if there are parts that can, why not simply release that on the portal every day? I mean, right now we get um, press releases on major arrests of interests. Why, why not simply uh, have those collated on a web page so we could check them when we need to? Uh, why depend on the press release? Why be on that mailing list? Why have to be on that mailing list in order to get, in order to get that information?
3: Are there, is there any uh, fear or worry among journalists that when you file a story based on the data that you're able to find that, oh, I hope I got it right or, or, or will the story potentially like say something that with a deeper data dive might say something differently otherwise or how, how does a journalist deal with that uncertainty? Well, that's
4: why the paper record is so much, uh, so much more valued. Um, when someone says something to us, do they say it uh, erroneously? Do they make a mistake? You have to rely on that trust with that source. And if it's a government source, that trust might be higher. But you also have to verify. So having the paper document even redacted is a much better way to verify. I have to say, I have in my time as a journalist gotten SFPD police reports redacted um, for incidents. It has happened. So clearly, it can happen. But in other cases in recent years in my professional life, I have been rebuffed. it's and and so have other journalists. So, it, you know, it is it happens when it happens
3: and it doesn't when it doesn't. Great. Do my colleagues have any questions? Right. All right. Thank you, Mr. Fitzgerald, for Thank being you. here to represent the Society of Professional Journalists. Next, I'd like to welcome Fred Brousseau from the Budget and Legislative Analysts Office to speak about the comparative analysis of prosecutorial dashboards. Good morning. <clears throat>
5: Good morning, uh, Chairs Stephanie, Supervisors Ingardio, and Dorsey. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm Fred Brousseau from the Budget and Legislative Analyst Office. I'm here this morning with Carrie Tam, a senior analyst from our office, and we are going to uh, provide a summary of our report prepared for Supervisor and Guardio, uh, Comparative Practices, Prosecuting Attorneys, Data Dashboards in San Francisco and Other Jurisdictions. Just quickly on uh, what a data dashboard is in a public agency. It's a uh, web site that uh, provides key agency data online in an easy to understand visual format. And what's most important about it is it provides filters so the user can easily uh, take the data that's presented but slice it and see it through different perspectives such as looking at a single year versus multiple years, or only certain types of cases or incidents, or only uh, incidents in a certain neighborhood. So the the dashboards, when they're online, increase the transparency of the agency that's presenting them. And uh, another great technical feature is they can be easily updated with a robust database using a case management uh, system from the agency. Um, there are dashboards on uh, DA's websites throughout the U.S., and the interest in doing this uh, pretty much goes back to 2010 at least, uh, when a number of national organizations and initiatives started promoting the idea. Measures for Justice, a nonprofit advocacy group, uh, was uh, a primary sponsor of this idea and assisted many DA's offices throughout the country in setting up dashboards. Prosecutors themselves created an advisory group uh, called the National Prosecutor Dashboard Advisory Group. The MacArthur Foundation, through its Safety and Justice Initiative, provided funding to a number of jurisdictions to create and maintain their dashboards. The San Francisco DA's office received a MacArthur grant and was involved with a number of national and local initiatives, such as the data-driven justice initiative on the national level and uh, locally the recidivism workgroup and multi-agency justice reinvestment initiative all of whom are interested in incorporating more data into uh, operating criminal justice agencies and analyzing outcomes and issues such as um, the racial and ethnic distribution of uh, how the system works and who's involved in the system, as well as uh, case efficiency, case load efficiency. So San Francisco has a dashboard. Here is a screenshot from one of their uh, pages. This one is showing a um, actions taken by the DA on cases that are presented to them. You can see there, uh, you can see multiple years here on what actions the DA's office took and um, filters are presented over on the right. So you could uh, filter this down further for cases filed, for example, to look at just a particular year. You can also filter by case types, whether it's a misdemeanor or felony, for example, and then the most serious charges associated with it. So you could look at all burglary cases or all narcotics cases and see this data presented this way. Um, This is uh, very informative. And it is, uh, it's been in place since 2019, and um, the DA's office. And it's unusual, I will add, um, we looked at DA dash uh, websites in other Bay Area counties and the large counties of Southern California and did not find anything like this presenting the dashboard. So that is good that we have this in San Francisco. However, we also compared. San Francisco's to dashboards in other jurisdictions throughout the country and found that there are um, many that have more robust uh, databases that they're presenting and more filters so that the data points can be sliced and diced in other ways to gain more insight into the information available. Uh, These jurisdictions are the ones we particularly focused on based on information from the National Prosecutor Dashboard Advisory Group. Uh, measures for justice and other literature on the topic Um, as you can see most of them are elsewhere although there was one other in California Yolo County in northern California has an excellent dashboard uh, that we'll talk about in a minute but so do these other jurisdictions all of them uh, follow a similar structure or have a similar structure where the key steps in the prosecution process is uh, presented, and you can see that in these four columns with the, the headers shown here, represent each of the key steps from arrest being presented to the DA's office, the actions taken by the DA, case dispositions, whether there was a conviction or an acquittal, and then case sentencing uh, that result in the jail sentence, probation, etc. And then in each column, you can see the Uh, filters that can be used in some, if not all of the jurisdictions we reviewed, so you can get more uh, refined information and, uh, and perspectives on the data presented. We have a lot of detail in the report, and I won't go through it all now, but we took each of these four steps and looked at what each of these jurisdictions presents. And here you see just a summary for the six jurisdictions in the one column of how many of them present filters that can be used for this particular data point. So for arrests referred, can you get it by offense type? Yes, in most of the jurisdictions, and yes, in San Francisco. But you will see some gaps here where it is uh, available in some of the other jurisdictions and not in San Francisco. And the pattern here is... Uh, prosecuted individual demographic information is uh, missing from San Francisco, so you can't slice it by the race or ethnicity of the um, of the individuals being prosecuted or other information such as their age, their gender, uh, their geographic location, what district of the city they live in, and related information. And again, you find that in um, some, most, uh, but not necessarily all of the other jurisdictions we reviewed. Everyone is a little different. This uh, screenshot shows a page from the Yolo County dashboard. This, we think, is a particularly exemplary dashboard, um, though all of them offer robust data and uh, lots of ways of looking at the information. But what we liked particularly about Yolo, it's a Tableau platform, and you can take any step in the process this one here is for one month and showing the decisions made by the DA's office after they reviewed the case and you can click through to any of the data points shown below so i highlighted uh cases prosec- misdemeanor cases prosecuted so there were 330 for this particular month you click on that and you can get the uh offenses you can get you know the the particular charges for the case you can then Click on that and get more information. What was the gender of of defendants for those particular types of cases? Where did they occur? Um, Was there a firearm involved? And other information to get it very refined. This, you can't get this level of detail on the San Francisco dashboard. You can just get kind of the, the mega picture of how many cases at this step. This is just kind of summarizing then what you could get in YOLO versus San Francisco. San Francisco, you could get all narcotics cases um, that were charged and whether they were felonies or misdemeanors. But in YOLO and some of the other jurisdictions we reviewed, you can get, for example, was it a distribution and manufacturing case? And then for those... What were the um, what was the gender and race or ethnicity of the defendants? What law enforcement agency was involved in the arrest? Was there a firearm involved? and you could get the conviction outcomes uh, for those type of cases as well, so you can get down to a very specific level of detail. Another thing I want to point out that we found in the other Uh, jurisdictions that was much stronger than what we found in San Francisco. San Francisco does have some uh, performance measures on their dashboard, uh, such as the number of cases closed and the time from arrest to close of the case. And these are important measures, and um, I think it's great that they're there. But you can see examples from some of the other jurisdictions which had much more performance information, not only on the cases, such as the Manhattan DA's office, which shows at the time of disposition how cases were changed. So if if they came in as a felony and then they were reduced to a misdemeanor, by the end, that information is available. That's something you can't get in San Francisco. And you can see it over time, see is that going up or down, and what does that tell us about the nature of the prosecutions. Milwaukee really stands out, Milwaukee County, for having all kinds of information about case processing and case processing efficiency, how long it's taking, but also how many cases does each prosecutor handle in a year, um, number of motions for continuance that are filed by the attorneys, which can prolong the cases, staff turnover. So some really great measures if you want to go in and just look at office performance as well as uh, details on caseload. For San Francisco, just to get to the cost part, the uh, current costs for what was uh, in place in June of 2023 and the office then had about .75 of a full-time equivalent two positions putting part of their time into updating and maintaining the existing dashboard. We asked the office to provide estimates of what it would cost to enhance it to include some of the features we found in the six other jurisdictions in particular. Their estimate is about $134,400. That would be for one half-time position, um, some uh, one-time support from the uh, technology department for some enhancements to the system. That would be about $18,000. And after that goes away, ongoing costs would be a little over $240,000 a year for the existing and new staff. We do recommend that if the board wants to pursue this further, they get more input from the DA's office and other criminal justice system stakeholders about uh, what could be included, what should be included, and we hope mirroring some of the uh, information you can get from the best practices jurisdiction that we've identified and profiled in our report and that the office look into um, outside funding. There have been grants available for this in the past and there might be now, so it might be possible to do this without a general fund cost. That's the summary of our report. Carrie Tam and I are here to uh, respond to any questions or comments now or uh, after you hear from the others.
3: Well, thank you for doing this research. The report is excellent report, really insightful. I mean, the good news is compared to other California cities, we're doing okay. Um, but of course, if you look at the six other jurisdictions, there's details in our dashboard, DA dashboard that, that don't offer um, a certain filter. Um, so just to recap, from uh, I think it uh, seems like we don't post the number of cases still going from previous years or the number of continuances and who requested them. Uh, we don't publish the location of the arrest or the severity of the offense whether or whether a firearm was involved. Um, we don't show the victim or defendant's demographics when an overwhelming majority of those other six jurisdictions do. Um, and we don't show data on diversion to alternative programs. So I'm wondering, um, did you uncover any policy reason why San Francisco does not make this, this type of information available while other cities do?
5: Um, not necessarily a policy reason. I think from the staff, and they can probably uh, explain it better, but I think that uh, you know there was a certain level of funding to get it up and running, and then it's remained static over uh, the last several years. So the dashboard really hasn't changed during that time it got up to a certain level and then remained constant. And um, I don't think anyone's opposed to it for a policy reason, from at least anyone we talked to, but uh, the the funding and the resources have not been provided to uh, enhance the system.
3: And I imagine you've done lots of reports uh, in your uh, tenure. Um, was there anything about this report that stood out to you that was extraordinary or something that you liked most that you discovered or something that just as a personal highlight that, that we might want to right. examine. Closer.
5: Yes, it did. And um, as a data nerd type of person, um, you know, I love seeing all the details in many of these other jurisdictions <clears throat> and the way you could um, just drill down and get to you know, such a refined level of information. But the other thing that I found that surprised me, frankly, is the, um, the performance measure information. And I will again point to Milwaukee, and we interviewed the... Milwaukee County District Attorney and you know he's really kind of an open book it's everything is there sometimes it's not a pretty picture sometimes you see problems in the data and uh, his belief is that that is um, information that the public should have Uh, so not only do they have a lot of detail on the cases but um, they have a lot of detail on how the office is functioning and if there's a change maybe they were more efficient last year than this. That's the kind of information as an analyst of government operations that I um, think is extremely valuable and you don't find in most places.
3: What I found interesting was that among the, the best cities that had the most robust data, uh, Philadelphia, Chicago, those are considered very progressive cities with very progressive DAs, so uh, it just struck me as, San Francisco. We're also a very progressive city, so it, it's not there's no ideology. It seems that determines whether you pr- produce more data or not. It's just a matter. Is it a matter of a will or or is it a matter of resource?
5: I think that in all of the other jurisdictions, there has been someone who's spearheaded the uh, the movement and you know made sure there were resources available. And I think it takes that uh, for the last several years in San Francisco. Uh, the dashboard has remained, has you know, sort of held constant. So, um, probably would take someone pushing for it, and that certainly seems to have been the case in the other jurisdictions.
3: Got it. Any questions from my colleagues?
5: Yeah. Thank you.
3: Thank you so much. This was a great presentation,
6: and I really appreciate your work on it. I had a question about um, in in your research, was there any sense of? Um, the amount of funding that it takes Yolo County, for example, or per- as a percentage of um, its budget? Is there, are there any takeaways that you explored or that would be worth exploring further?
5: Uh, yeah, Supervisor Dorsey, we did look into the costs incurred by the other jurisdictions, um, and we thought, at least in some cases, they must have spent a lot of money because the dashboards were uh, so much more robust. We did not find that to be the case. In almost every uh, jurisdiction, there were one or two staff people uh, operating the dashboard. And they may have had some infusion of funds at the beginning, such as grant funding, to, um, to set up the dashboard. But overall, there, um, there wasn't that much different, even from a Cook County, a very large jurisdiction, or Manhattan, uh, and you know they don't have a higher level of staffing uh, in any significant way than what we have here, and what we have available. So that, that was an interesting and kind of a surprising finding. Yeah, thanks.
3: All right, well, thank you. I appreciate you being here this morning. To, uh, walk us through your great research. Um, so thank you so much. Uh, I'd like to now invite Eddie McCaffrey, or Edward McCaffrey, our, the Chief of Policy for the San Francisco District Attorney's Office to present on our city's prosecutor dashboard.
7: Uh, Good morning, uh, members, Chair Stephanie, Supervisor Engardio, Supervisor Dorsey, thanks so much for having us here today. I appreciate, uh, you know, first, Supervisor Engardio for really looking into this issue. I think it's something that uh, District Attorney Jenkins is very focused on within our office around transparency and elevating kind of the data that we have in our office. Um, but also want to take a minute to just uh, express appreciation to the Budget Legislative Analyst's Office for their great work. We agree with, um, I think, what is a lot lot of what has been said here today. Um, And we're going to kind of walk you through a little bit of a roadmap of what the dashboards that we have available. And so um, my colleague Nora Gregory, who is our uh, director over data research and analytics, uh, we're going to be kind of tag teaming the presentation. And so uh, she's going to go over the next slide, which is going to talk a little bit about the timeline on how we got to this.
8: Uh, Yeah, so hello, good morning. Uh, The dashboards that we published today are really a product of over a decades long commitment by our office across multiple elected DAs to use data to drive decision making, uh, to better understand the impacts of the criminal justice system, and to provide greater transparency to our office's work. Um, and this really got started in 2011 with District Attorney, Attorney George Gascone, who launched uh, something called DA STAT, which was a performance management system modeled after Comstat, which many law enforcement agencies use. Um, and the goal of that was to focus on using data to make operational decisions in the office. Uh, and it was really for DA STAT that the office began putting together internal reporting tools very early versions of some of the dashboards that we published today to track various metrics Um, and you know in the intervening decade the office has been a part of many local and national initiatives aimed at getting criminal justice agencies to adopt more data-driven approaches a notable example of this uh, is the San Francisco Sentencing Commission which was a multi-agency working group started by the SFDA in 2012 to study and make recommendations about sentencing in the city and county Uh, And one piece of this work was to better understand recidivism uh, and the commission set out to come up with some agreed upon definitions and metrics, uh, figure out a way to share and link uh, data together between agencies and create a public dashboard to track what was happening with recidivism. And to develop develop the dashboard, the office got help from both researchers at NYU uh, and UC Berkeley. And additionally, we received, as as many other offices have, a grant from the MacArthur Foundation, uh, which helped us uh, bring on a data fellow to develop um, this dashboard. Um, And then it was in 2019 that our office became the first prosecutor's office in the state uh, and the second in the nation to publish uh, a set of public-facing dashboards. Um, And this first set of dashboards included uh, a dashboard on cases presented, cases filed, uh, trial outcomes, um, and also on recidivism. And then in 2022, we also launched uh, two additional dashboards, one on case resolutions or dispositions, um, and then one on um, uh, the work of our victim services division.
7: And so I'll just, so, you know, before we jump into some of the uh, dashboards that we are going to present, I just want to kind of outline some key bullet points from us as an office, you know, some you know, mission and vision uh, perspective. And, you know, I think I just mentioned earlier about the, the focus of transparency, uh, but using the data within our office to make informed decisions, uh, both from a policy standpoint and both and also from a strategy standpoint. Uh, As uh, my colleague Nora said, we're the first prosecutor's office in California and the second in the country to publish our dashboards. Uh, It's been, uh, I think, a lot of work over the last five years and work that we're excited about continuing. Uh, We currently have seven dashboards that are live and active. We update them on a weekly, five of them on a weekly basis. Um, And, you know, one thing we wanted to make sure we highlighted in this conversation was you know, we can, we're going to walk through some of the filtering. We're going to walk through some of the kind of overall intent of our dashboards. But, you know, as far as the raw data, we also are key partners with DataSF to take a lot of that raw data, make it available on DataSF, which I know a lot of other departments do, uh, because I think we kind of want to Make sure we focus and highlight that we want to partner, and we want to encourage the, the public to dig into our data however they see fit. Um, and you know, we are serving as that partner in that conversation and in that work.
8: And before we get into the dashboards themselves, I'd like to briefly explain where our data come from and how we put together the data sets that ultimately feed into the dashboards and also what we publish on DataSF. And particularly, I want to highlight the vital role that data from our criminal justice agency partners has in the creation of our data sets. Our office has a new case management system that we just got last year. That's called eProsecutor it replaced uh, a legacy system that was called Damien and up until a few years ago Damien was really our sole source of data for uh, any type of analysis or dashboards that we published Um, however Damien did not include some information that we would want to have Uh, for example uh, there was no field in the system to track where the geographic location was of the uh, a cases incident Um, additionally sometimes uh, that There was information that was supposed to be in the system um, that was not there, you know, either through systems error, um, information failing to populate from uh, CMS or just, you know, human data entry error. Um, You know, for example, sometimes we had information missing on case resolutions. Um, And it was in 2021 that we finally got access to, direct access to the court and SFPD's databases, CMS and crime data warehouse and we began to bring in additional um, data elements uh, like the ones I just mentioned in addition to others, and we integrated those with our own data. Um, Historically, we've not had great uh, data on demographic information of defendants. Um, So in 2020, we also began receiving data directly from the sheriff, which included self-reported information on the race, ethnicity, and gender of people booked into custody. And as it stands today, we have a systematic way to call data from each of these sources, clean it, link it together, to ultimately produce uh, the data that our office has. Uh, you know, and as Eddie mentioned, we publish seven dashboards on our website. Uh, for today's sake, I'm just gonna walk through three of them to kind of explain what we publish and, and how the dashboards work. Uh, this dashboard, which is actions on all arrests presented, shows the number of criminal cases presented by law enforcement agencies to our office each year with the breakdown of decisions our office has made. Um, and to the point that I was trying to make on the last slide, the data here comes from not only our own case management system, but we're also bringing in information from the Superior Courts database to make this um, dashboard. Um, you know, the bars again represent the number of cases brought to us each year. Um, there are several different actions our office can take when presented with a criminal case. We can file charges, uh, which is represented by the yellow um, blocks, meaning that we decide there's enough evidence to prosecute a case. We can discharge a case, which is represented by the gray bars, meaning there is not enough evidence uh, to file charges. We can also take other actions, such as initiating a motion to revoke probation, uh, or we can refer um, you know, a case back to the law enforcement agency for further uh information, etc. cetera. Um, the line, the black line running across the dashboard represents our filing rate over time. And that is the cases filed out of all cases presented to us um, in a given year. Um, and the gray line represents the rate where we took any action on a case. That means we did anything uh, other than discharging it. Um, and the dashboard is dynamic. Uh, we have filters as, as the BLA's presentation was pointing out on the right-hand side that allow you to focus on certain data points. You can filter on the year an arrest was made, uh, the case type that was when it was presented to us, whether it was a felony or misdemeanor, um, the most serious offense on the type presented to us, and whether or not the case was reviewed by our uh, domestic violence unit. Um, And the next slide is the exact same dashboard, but just showing you an example of how it is dynamic and you can use the filters. Um, here we filed on looking at all felony burglary cases presented to us so far this year. Um, and as you can see, um, uh, there were 517 cases that have been presented to us as of uh, September 28th, 79% of which uh, we filed charges on and 87% of which we've taken any action on Uh, The next dashboard that we were going to show is uh, case resolutions and this is data on all cases prosecuted by our office that have reached Uh, A conclusion or a case disposition. Uh, The different types of resolutions are listed on the legend at the top, conviction, dismissal, successful diversion, etc. These are based on a numerical code that the court assigns at the end of a case. Our team takes these codes and categorizes them into different these different outcomes. It's our goal to make our dashboards as accessible as possible and visualize the data in different ways. Um, You know, here, for example, we are presenting at the top the distribution of cases closed per year by disposition outcome. And the graph at the bottom is showing the uh, rate of disposition outcomes among all cases uh, resolved. For, you know, for example, the yellow line here is our conviction rate. The orange line is our dismissal rate, et cetera. Um, And the next slide. Is again, this is the same dashboard, but just showing the use of the dynamic filters. Here, we're looking at all felony burglary cases that were resolved in uh, 2022. Um, I believe that was around 500 cases uh, that we resolved last year, and um, you know, our graph at the bottom shows you that our conviction rate was 60, around 63 percent. Our dismissal rate was around 21 percent. Um, and around 17% of people had their case um, dismissed because they successfully completed a diversion or collaborative courts program. Um, And of course, prosecuting criminal cases isn't just the only focus of our office. Our Victim Services Division also supports and provides resources to survivors of crime. Um, And those are not only criminal incidents that we're prosecuting, but also incidents that that we might not be prosecuting. Um, and this dashboard presents the number of unique victims served by our Victim Services Division each year. It does include the demographic information about the victims we serve. Um, we collect this information differently than the information we collect on defendants. Um, um, and as you can see, in terms of filters here on the right-hand side, we can look at the data based on the race and ethnicity of the victim, the age of the victim, uh, the language uh, the victim speaks if English is not their first language, and the crime that the victim was affected by.
7: And so I think the, the slides we went through at a high level, of course, um, you know, try to give a, a little bit of a snapshot, but also try to walk the um, the reviewer through the process as well Um, and I think I appreciate the comments earlier from the BLA which would you know talking about just what it requires to maintain and staff the existing dashboards and so uh, since 2018 our ongoing maintenance of uh, the dashboards has been provided by a few staff members uh, who have dedicated part of their time to the effort in addition to doing a number of other duties Uh, the allocation of staff time has varied from year to year with annual costs ranging from about $117,000 to $167,000 for an average of approximately 0.91 full-time staff. Um, And so that kind of period over uh, 2018 to 2022, which is uh, in this exhibit here, kind of gives you a little bit of a sense of how the department has uh, sought to fund that, that work over the last number of years. Um, and again, it's mostly been uh, supported through uh, general fund dollars. While we have obviously looked to alternative uh, sources as well. Um, and then, I uh, just one last item in mind. This one was as of June 2023. To uh, to maintain and update the dashboards was approximately about $124,000 uh, for approximately 0.75 full-time positions. Um, And so, you know, to conclude, I want to again express our appreciation to to the BLA and, of course, to Supervisor Engardio and to the committee members to hear uh, this item today. Uh, You know, as I just mentioned, our office is actively seeking uh, funding opportunities uh, from a variety of ways, not just from uh, the city budget, but through grants and from uh, private partnerships as well. Uh, that's something that it's not just related to data dashboards but related to our victim services work as well as a number of other other units and so um, we're trying to be as creative as possible uh, because from District Attorney Jenkins perspective uh, like I said at the outset uh, transparency is absolutely a priority uh, making data informed decisions and so from her her perspective, she does want to see what we presented on today, what currently exists on our website expanded, um, and so what that expansion could look like would include, you know, publishing broader data sets uh, such as on uh, collaborative courts and uh, diversion programs. Uh, talking about uh, geographical information to talk about uh, incidents and where they're happening throughout the city, uh, we've kind of uh, done a little bit of uh, homework on that internally to kind of understand what what would go into that kind of work, uh, specifically the geographical data, and uh, the kind of commitment from a staffing standpoint, uh, knowledge-based standpoint, and also from a system standpoint as well to kind of start the ball rolling on hopefully eventually going in that direction to providing that information more publicly available. Um, uh, But we also have kind of motivations to include performance measurements. Uh, We understand, we highlighted the victim services team but I think there is a desire citywide to understand how departments are doing their work and uh, at what rate they're doing the work. And you know we come up through the budget process on an annual basis, talking about staffing to certain units, uh, desires and needs uh, for additional resources. But I think from District Attorney Jenkins standpoint and from the office as a whole, performance metrics is something where we also wanna take these metrics, uh, take these dashboards in the future. Um, and so in addition to you know, additional filtering options, which uh, was highlighted through other uh, DA offices throughout the, the uh, country, Um, you know the reality is at this moment we just do not have the staffing levels to make those improvements to to take those expansions to the next level Uh, as mentioned uh, the the existing staff is really maintaining and ensuring that the data that we uh, house in our office but the ones that we partner with other departments they're there they're available that you don't run into data error messages as a user that's something that I've been on the uh, on the side of it's extremely frustrating and so our team does a fantastic job uh, not just Nora and her team but also from our IT perspective to ensure that you know there's no uh, time for service that they're not down for 24 hours but that they're continually updated on on a regular basis Um, and so uh, as was mentioned as far as what that additional support would look like uh, we do estimate that an additional 1824 principal administrative analysts uh, of an annual cost of around $116,000 would be necessary as well as uh, a temporary systems engineer at a one-time cost of $18,000 Uh, This is uh, in a ballpark of around $134,000, $418 to be exact, uh, total uh, on an annual basis, in addition to the commitment that we're currently providing from a staffing standpoint. Um, And so from there, I'll pause and open it up for any questions we'd be happy to take from, from committee members. But again, just wanted to say thank you to the BLA and also to the supervisor.
3: Thank you. That's great. And it's great to hear that uh, your office is uh, wanting to add these enhancements, even if um, funding is a constraint. I just had a couple questions. Um, uh, funding aside, um, you had mentioned that in the enhancements that you would be willing to do location. Is there any policy reason to not show the um, severity of the offense or any policy reason to not show the, the victim or um, defendant demographics?
8: Um, no, there's no policy. And, uh, as we did show on the last board, we do share the victim demographics that are handled by our victim services division.
3: But but just, just that division. Yes, exactly. Uh, so
8: not all victims. Um, the, my understanding, this predates my time, but when the dashboards were first published, the reason demographic information was not included was because the quality of the information we had was bad. Um, the police department may have, able to speak to this as well, but my understanding is the way that the information was being collected by the sheriff and how that fed into the court system, uh, we sometimes lost some of the information. Uh, for example, I believe the way that the sheriff coded um, a Latinos uh, was uh, with race white and uh, Hispanic as the ethnicity, but what transferred over to Um, CMS, which then populated our system with the defendant information, would just be white, so there was just a lack of information, and in any time uh, trying to make information public, there's a balance between transparency and accuracy and not providing just bad junk data, Um, so I believe that was why the original decision was made. Um, As I mentioned, we now have uh, information directly from the sheriff. So we have uh, a better level of detail on demographics. Uh, that only began in 2021, though. So, um, you know, our current dashboard is looking at over a span of over a decade. We just need to make a decision about the best way to present that information over time, if that makes sense.
3: Got it. So if if, if there's no policy reason, it's just a matter of the resource and getting good data. It sounds like we have the data now. Um, Talking about resource, because when we heard from the journalists, they said the demographic data was really the number one thing they need. Is there a way to do this a la carte in a sense? Like, do you need to do it all? Or is if we can cherry pick the thing that's most needed and we put whatever limited resource we have to at least do one little enhancement is or do you need to do it all together?
7: Yeah, sure. So I think it's a great question. It's one of our uh, items that we're looking into at the moment because our IT division um, similarly uh, kind of stretched thin at the moment is kind of battling with a similar challenge, which it's not just a data kind of analysis standpoint. It's also building the systems in order to make sense of the data to populate it. And so it's something that we're looking into. But as far as kind of what is the timeline or what is the expectation, unfortunately, I don't have an answer for you at the moment, supervisor, but I'm happy to follow up with you.
3: Great. And you had mentioned that, that uh, private sources of funding might be available. Are there, is there anything you've pursued for these enhancements or anything you would like to pursue or are you looking at?
7: Well, I think um, when we talk about private, it's, you know, I, there's a general interest, I think, from San Francisco. You outlined it in your remarks earlier about being, you know, the tech capital. Uh, being uh, an expectation uh, we are always looking and, and we have meetings with uh, Entities uh, both in San Francisco and throughout the Bay Area uh, Because we've found that there are businesses that do find value in this in this uh, in this region in this area uh, of, of Industry and I think what we want to do is figure out what that right partnership looks like um, But of course, we're not going to sit on our heels. We're going to try to be as proactive as possible Unfortunately, there's nothing active or live at the moment, um, but again, we're, we're open
3: And my next question, is just bear with me because this is my way of like thinking of a creative solution to like the constraints we have. So like the bottom line is if if we want a full picture of what's going on, a journalist, a researcher, they're going to have to look at multiple data sets. They're going to have to Look at a police incident report, arrest data, uh, cases presented to district attorney, jail booking information, the sheriff's department, court records. So they got to go to all these different departments. Um, so it takes a lot of skill and resource. And imagine if a professional journalist is frustrated, like w- what a crime victim feels like, right? So, um, and so I understand the DA is not responsible for data held by the courts, it just as police is not responsible for the data held by the DA. But I'm wondering, so. First, like if I had a magic wand and a limited pot of money, we could like create a whole uh, new entity that integrates, pulls in all the different data, integrates it, and makes this beautiful dashboard where it's one-stop shop for everything, right? But in the meantime, right, we don't have that magic wand or pot of money. Um, I'm wondering if there's a creative workaround. So the idea is, for example, a case the DA charges, right? could the DA's website just simply link out to the relevant public document at the court's Right, and then um, the police department could do something similar. I'll ask them if an arrest is led to a charge, there could be a little notation with a link out to the relevant public document at the DA's office. So, in a way, we're we're creating a uh, we're just we're just linking out to public documents that you don't own, right? But you're just doing that service. So, so we're kind of we're making it easier for someone to follow a case from arrest to charge to court hearing or trial. We, we're basically creating a trail of links that people can follow. They don't have to like, hunt. For everything and every different website, like would that be something
7: even feasible or possible? Um, I'll let Nora get into the specifics, but if you do have that magic wand supervisor, <laughs> I'd love to borrow it and address some other issues as well. I do think, you know, it, it, and unfortunately, it does come back to not just uh, a, a resource issue, but you know, from a standpoint of time and, and capacity. I think that there is a there's an interest in and in a, in a willingness. I think what it comes down to is the uh, the need to build that kind of process, and to ensure that the documentation that is being shared, uh, I think as was mentioned earlier, needs to be redacted to ensure that certain private information uh, that is required by sc- by code to kept uh, private isn't made available, and that we don't run into any of those risks. And so it's something that we're constantly talking about uh, internally. You know, we are always happy and willing to work with the public and reporters, of course, as they submit whether it's public records requests or just general inquiries. Um, I think District Attorney Jenkins is uh, happy to have those conversations with our press. Uh, but also from a staff standpoint, I can tell you that on a on a regular basis uh, we're interacting uh, with members of the press not just from a local standpoint but from a national standpoint, in some cases an international standpoint, to share that necessary documentation but do it in a safe and private way to ensure that there's no risk involved. Um, and then I don't know if Nora, you had anything to share. But.
8: I think it's a really interesting idea. I would need to think of more detail about how it would work. I mean, to your point, it's not completely user-friendly, but the police do publish all of the incident numbers that are, you know, all of the incident reports, and you can link those incident report numbers to our public data sets and see if a case was actually presented to us, and then what the, whether we decided to file charges on that case, and then, you know, once that case reaches resolution, what the ultimate outcome was, but uh, I agree with you, it's not particularly user-friendly, you need some data skills in order to work with that.
3: Right, that's why I thought, like, what I mean, this is just an idea, so, but, like, we're just linking to already public documents, right? So it's just, you're just giving someone a little bit extra service, like, you can, if you see a a data point on your website, but it's connected to something that's happened in the courts, just link out to it, and so that people don't have to go to the court website and find it there. That's just the idea, but we can talk more offline about that. And then, uh, the very, very last question is any progress or what's the latest with justice? I mean, you don't have to do too much detail. That's a whole separate hearing, but we've talked about it a lot. And. Uh, it, it's a baseline of, of what you get from these other departments, but are, are things going well with justice implementation? Are there still ways to go?
7: I think there's, it seems like, and I'll let Nora speak to this more in detail, I think that there's a ways to go, but there's a high motivation and willingness to kind of come to the table and figure out what those solutions are, much more so I think in the last couple of years. It seems like I, I've witnessed um, just from a tangential standpoint that uh, uh, from the partners that are at the table that there's a high willingness to kind of troubleshoot those concerns and those issues and try to get some of those problems fixed as soon as possible I don't have the specificity of exactly what those challenges and those issues are um, but I have seen kind of a a much uh, stark difference from the first number of months uh, District Attorney Jenkins took office to the last like six or so
8: yes I only participate in one of the working groups for the Justice um, Committee but um, there was a brief pause over the past few months and we've recently relaunched and are kind of uh, have been restructuring the rules with which we operate, which should hopefully um, help uh, expedite some of our decision-making with the group. So I would agree with um, Eddie.
3: Great, well, thank you so much for being here today to answer these questions, Uh, really appreciate it. Thank you. Great. Oh, I'm sorry, any other questions from our colleagues?
6: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Um, thanks so much for a great um, presentation. You know, I did work for a couple of years on the, uh, in a public information role in the uh, police department. Um, but for that, I was in the city attorney's office for 14 years, and I don't think I fully appreciated how good we had it on the civil side um, that you could get, look, get uh, you know, the, a brief that was filed yesterday you know, I, in a PDF. It's the same superior court. It's just the civil side is completely different than the criminal side, Um, and I don't know if you you have thoughts on why that may be. And maybe this is for the other hearing that's to come. But just in general terms, um, is is there any sort of any any thoughts you have on why the criminal side is different than civil courts?
7: You know, Supervisor, I don't have a specific um, explanation for that. I will say separately, there's a couple of grants that we house internally. Um, this is specifically speaking to the criminal component and uh, talking about the partnership between, you know, multi-agencies with regarding to law enforcement. And I think uh, there's always um, a challenge. Sometimes when it comes to, you know, bringing all the partners to the table at the same level of interest and uh, willingness to participate, Uh, and I think from a standpoint with the courts, uh, they are very much uh, their own unique space, and they uh, dictate the terms on how and when they participate in a lot of examples. Um, And so, you know, I look forward to that additional hearing uh, that you all are potentially hosting with the courts and the sheriff's office and others, um, and happy to be a resource if and when possible for that.
6: Can i ask if there are obstacles that you run into with any of the state prohibitions on disclosure of criminal offender record information or corey data i know that when i was at the uh, police department that was often a, a major concern about over disclosing record information about that i would identify criminal offenders and my i i felt like i never got a great answer on this and it was a source of frustration to myself and i know um, to journalists, that there was just a window of about 90 days contiguous with an arrest, and then that faded into something that we could no longer reference or talk about. Um, when we're talking about cases, I assume those endure you know, forever, they're public records, or are they not? Are you, in your data, in other words, let me frame it this way. If I wanted to see how many times an individual, and I had the name, was prosecuted for an offense. Would that be something that I could do through a dashboard or would I have to go to the courts or could I not do it at all?
8: Um, so to your point, uh, state law prohibits us from publishing uh, summary criminal history information. Um, so we de-identify the case level. We do publish case level data, um, but we, identi- we take away the personally identifying information the SF number, the name, uh, the date. We do publish uh, some information um, in aggregate about uh, whether or not we see people come through the system again. Uh, We have a dashboard called the Subsequent Contact Analysis Dashboard, which is looking at uh, those who have um, been convicted uh, and served time in county jail or have been on probation and whether or not we see them, again, either through an arrest, arraignment, or a subsequent conviction, Um, but that's information published um, in aggregate, if that answers your question. Okay,
6: so it doesn't include the, there's no transparency on how many times an individual has been prosecuted?
8: Uh, Not one individual, no.
3: Okay, 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 thanks. Thank you, thank you so much for being here, appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right, lastly, we're going to hear from Catherine McGuire, Director of the Police Department Strategic Management Bureau. Um, Thank you for being here.
0: Good morning, Supervisors. Uh, Thank you for having me. As you said, Catherine McGuire. I'm the Executive Director of the Strategic Management Bureau at the Police Department. Um, I'll be talking to you uh, today about our... uh, Well, I wanted to give you a little bit of an overview and background on our system or our types of data that we collect and um, how much progress we've made in the last six or seven years and uh, then tell you kind of what's on the horizon as well or underway and on the horizon and then uh, dig in a little bit more into the detail of uh, responses to information requests and um, incident reports. Next slide. So. Uh, so this is sort of the overview of the last oh, 10, 12 years. And, you know, we've had incident data consistently, gosh, going back many decades, uh, staffing and personnel data similarly, and officer and risk data about mm, 15 years or so. Um, that that um, those are, you know, pretty big, and really the first two being very big data sets that, that we've had have maintained for a very long time. The the newer data sets are our use of force data, which is now you know, systematically collected and with demographic information and the like. Um, we have body-worn camera footage, which in, entails some um, high-level, some metadata about the body-worn camera um, footage that then, you know, we, we don't really do any analysis on it, uh, but it's there. <laughs> and then we have stops data, and uh, which has gone through several iterations in the last um, eight years. And I'll t- I can talk more about that. But ultimately, uh, we also have introduced electronic evidence tracking in the last few years. And we will be. The big thing on the horizon is case data. So this is our case management system, which is part of our records management system that we are in the process of implementing. Um, I'll just make note of two major improvements that we've made recently on use of force and stops data. For use of force, we have shifted to an electronic um, form that is entered directly in the field, not in the field, but by supervisors in the field. Um, And that, instead of a paper form that gets sent and then entered, so it reduces the possibility or um, the potential for data entry errors. And then, the STOPS data um, is, has also been improved just this year in the last few months. We've shifted from the state STOPS data collection system to uh, an internal off-the-shelf um, vendor that is providing multiple uh, modules in their system that will, will allow us to do a number of things. And I, it, <laughs> I won't go into that today, but happy to talk more about that at some point. Next slide, please. So drilling down to, or actually zooming out more more like, um, wanted to kind of give you just an overview for the public in particular about the various buckets of data in the criminal justice system. I'm not here to speak on behalf of the entire criminal justice system, but I thought it was helpful context for, for those um, folks watching who aren't aware that all of these different data, uh, data pieces in the criminal justice puzzle are handled by different agencies and some of whom are not even city agencies. Um, so, you know, as you can see, DEM really handles the call type and why police might respond. Um, and then, and this is just the police side, the criminal justice side. Um, DEM handles also fire and um, EMS de- uh, dispatch. So response, detention, and arrest, that's the SFPD. And we track, you know, I've already talked about all of our data types, so I'll skip over that. And then, of course, the Sheriff's Department ha- handles booking information, the district attorney handling charging information, and the courts really handling outcomes um, of those charges. Next slide, please. Um, so the currently, SFPD is, is in the configuration stage of implementing central. We had, um, ran in our uh, procurement process and selected Central Square for our RMS implementation. Again, an off-the-shelf system. This is a big transformation for SFPD, who has built a lot of their systems Or We've built a lot of the systems that we had in-house for about 10 years and realized, well, we really are better at at fighting crime, not Mm -hmm. being a software development company. And so uh, we made that shift. And so um, Central Square includes uh, a case management system as well. That is something that right now we have case tracking. So we know what cases are assigned and to whom. But that's about the extent of it um, the case management system would be something that our um, our investigators can use as a tool to help them look at where the evidence is what result what the crime lab is finding what um, there there's just a lot of opportunity there and a lot of opportunity for um, analytical outcomes or, or ability to analyze those data as, as they come online. And we have no idea what we'll be able to do in the future, but um, it will be a, a shift for the police department. Seismic, of seismic proportions. Um, transparency, we're, really we are, as uh, the other agencies have indicated for themselves, relying, data, pushing data to data SF. Um, we've got all of our data sets on data SF save our use of force data, which is in process right now. Um, we are also... Uh, we also do a lot of reporting and visualizations of our data. We've got the Crime Dashboard, as you know, um, Chair and Guardio, uh, and then the Stops Data Dashboard as well coming soon. Uh, We have a partnership with the controller's office to develop that dashboard, and I believe we're really close to being finished with that work. So that will be coming soon. The stops data dashboard and the crime data dashboard seek to be part of um, a solution (laughs) for my analytical team to no longer have to publish our quarterly activity and data report. And um, the idea there being that all of the data will be found on a dashboard that can be easily sliced and diced for the public and in ways that we can't even get to in our 300 or 200-page quarterly report. So um, that is forthcoming as well. Next slide. So going back to sort of how the public gains access to these data, other than dashboards, um, we do field a lot of requests on, um, for actual data sets. So we've issued our use entire use of force data set several times over. Um, the SFPD legal receives those data requests and uh, our business analysis team, I have Jason Cunningham who's the lead of that team here to answer any questions about that, and I also have uh, Will Sanson-Mosier, who's our CIO, uh, to answer any questions about our systems that are um, in the process of being implemented. So we are mandated, or the business analysis team has to remove personally identifiable information per state law, um, location for sexual assaults and other crime categories, and any incidents involving juveniles to protect their anonymity. The goal of um, our program, of our transparency program, really is the most frequently requested data sets being posted on DataSF, and those are the ones that are already there, again, but for our use of force data set for people to use on their own and analyze whatever they like. Uh, And it does, all data sets do include demographics except um, our our arrest data right now. Uh, and that is a function of a, a legacy system that we're in the process of replacing. And then finally, uh, shifting to an online transparent data set really allows us to free up those analysts' time for other necessary work, such as management analyses, evaluations of operational or administrative changes, and ensuring data integrity, consistency, and accuracy. Finally, uh, for incident reports, thanks Rima. Um, we so incident reports generally when we, we get a request, I'll go through the process very high level here. Um, they're processed by our Crime Information Services Division and the Aman- Administration Bureau. Um, the and they essentially they will send out to the unit or the you know, sort of folks that authored the incident report to redact the incident report as appropriate with the guidance that we have set forth in our department general order 3.16 and and excuse me the there are you know there's some detail there on that slide about what they can and uh, do redact and it's really in order to protect um, victims or witnesses and the the piece that is lesser known is probably to the public and maybe yourselves as well is that um, SFPD may further redact information that may risk or expose investigative techniques or the completion of an investigation and so if uh, an incident is under investigation and there's content in the report that might expose the investigation or uh, interfere with the investigation, um, the the department may decide that it it's not in the public interest to release it. Um, so, as you can see, there is uh, in three point one six. I'll go back up to that third bullet and the sub bullet, the quote there um, that I believed ties directly to state law about. Um, unless release would endanger citizens, law enforcement personnel, or law enforcement investigation, or constitute an unnecessary invasion of privacy. Um, We must release it unless it fits one of those things. We we, we do release those things. And that concludes my presentation today and happy to answer any questions.
3: Great. Thank you. So uh, right off the bat, I'll ask the same question I asked the district attorney's office about Linking to other agency records, so knowing that you're not responsible for records the DA holds, um, could you hyperlink to the DA's website? Meaning, if if you have an arrest that led to a charge, then why not just link out um, so people can read a public document about that charge? So that way, right, it's just helping people, you know, guide them to the to the next phase.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I love that idea. I, I think that um, there are several ways to get at that. I think Will and I were just um, <laughs> we were just discussing a potential simple solution, which might just be to provide instructions on our crime dashboard mm-hmm. or wherever they're looking, that says use this number go here and search (laughs) and that might be the simplest solution a more elegant solution which i think probably would be about a billion dollar project and 10 years (laughs) would be a system that is uh, you know has the incident report and then there's a hyperlink from the incident number on the SFPD incident report the incident number that then searches all the systems in the sheriff the the DA the court that then would produce all the relevant records but again that's that's like that is a pipe dream <laughs> in the future and i think ultimately that that's something where you know the nitty-gritty of that would include every agency having to have redacted their their records um Quickly, uh, and, and this is presuming a several months later. Maybe that's more possible. Um, every agency having redacted their, their records and put them online. So that's, and that sounds rather simple, but if you're talking about the volume that we're all dealing with um, I think that's where it gets a little bit more difficult.
3: Yeah, but your simple solution sounds good. At least something. So it's just we're we're serving the public. We're giving them a roadmap, or like that. That's a great idea. If if we can even do that simple version, yeah. that would be that would yeah, be I fantastic. Think we could probably pull that off. <laughs> yeah. So uh, along those lines, on the Data SF page, um, so I'm not able to like pull it up, and sh- maybe I'll like, talk it through. There's a table preview, and there's a on the grid halfway down. There's a column labeled resolution. And then, my question is, where it says cite or arrest, is there a way to add a link to the charging document? Would that be possible?
0: <laughs> um, I think that would be, again, that's something that maybe it's the best like narrative instruction as possible, and I don't know if the DA's office would have the charging document online, we can certainly um, have a little sidebar conversation and see what we can figure out.
3: That'd be great. I'm just trying to be, be creative, find ways we can Mm -hmm. do simple, simple fixes. And for simple fixes, I, I I don't know if this needs to be a fix, but something that stands out to me and I've heard others are confused when they go to your crime, uh, (laughs) dashboard. So, um, so if you go to the main crime dashboard it tells you all the burglaries and whatever and there's even homicides listed there but then like when you scroll down there's this note in red type it says note monthly homicide numbers are located here so it's like uh, right you're seeing the numbers above and then you have this big red note saying click here and then this pdf comes up and it now you wonder like. which is the right document or are they different and i got to look at them both so is there a reason why that red note is there?
0: (laughs) Yes, it's a very good reason. Um, So part of the reason is that, and I'm going to have Will jump in here in a second when I get this wrong, Um, part of the reason is that uh, that report that you see that you clicked on is by incident. So now you might have multiple homicide victims in an incident and that would be reflected in that red note report that pdf report is the number of victims and so for ucr purposes and that's how we are guided to report our crime to the state and federal governments is that we we count victims of course we do it's homicide um and and so the incident count isn't always reflective of the number of homicides that we might have that's confusing for yes (laughs) (laughs) we i mean you know another solution is eliminating that ho- homicide in the and then just keeping the link to homicide number or accounts but um you know we leave it we've left it for now right um, so
3: maybe on a sidebar we should talk about or maybe talk with some users like mm-hmm. like victims or community advocates or journalists to like how what's the confusion level is there language that could be said that to to avert the confusion or you know yeah. so okay yeah. and then uh um Yeah, I wanted to ask about police reports, because this was another number one topic we heard from the journalists. Um, You know, know, in many cities, it's pretty routine to get a police report, so I'm I'm trying to get a sense. What what I'm hearing from journalists is that it seems to be kind of on the whim of what was happening that day and who they're interacting with, and it's, I'll have time to tell you what's in it, or I'm not going to get back to you, or I'll put it in the mail, like, is there a, I just want to get a sense what like what's the baseline procedure for getting a police report?
0: So um as I described before, I suspect this is a bureaucratic and an SFPD unique issue. Um I I know and I I hate to say this because I know we say it all the time. It all comes back to staffing. So um, the the Uh, The issue, so as I described before, the request comes in, it goes to our criminal information or crime information services division, that's our records room, Um, they then refer it out to the field to whomever wrote the report or, or the unit that wrote the report and they have to do the redaction. That makes sense because you have a person who's the closest to the case who knows it well enough to know whether or not it fits those criteria we, we talked about, right? So, but the the problem can be, is that person on leave? Are they busy with responding to calls for service? Are they, you know, there's any number of factors that might go into that. So there's, there's room for improvement there for sure. On the bureaucracy side, um, I think giving our um, our CISD Crime Information Services Division a bit more um, well, more staffing would be great there, and then um, better guidance on what and what can be re- or should needs to be redacted. And maybe it's um, I I think there was a there was a comment that I think the reporter made about that made me think. Well, we might be able to do a somewhat automated solution where they wouldn't get the full police report, but they could get more information without us having releasing anything that would be of um, of that would you know sort of endanger either victims or witnesses or the um, or law enforcement. Right? Cause, yeah, because so, I
3: saw your list of criteria. It, it seems pretty standard. So like. Mm-hmm. A, educated person or trained person could probably look at most police reports and and check the list and so maybe it's automated uh maybe it's ai and then someone just reviews it Mm -hmm. uh but it seems like that could be a you know a better process and that we can push out those those police reports faster i mean ideally it'd be amazing if you had a on a website where it's a map of the city where an incident happened you could the public could just click and that redacted police report would just show up so you everyone can see get, get, at least get more information right yeah. based on what you were saying yeah so for sure that's...
0: I think I will say there's a, there's another element of this which is we were talking just yesterday about police reports and um, police reports you know they get written but they have to be approved by a sergeant too and and hi, and in some data sets even higher levels so the availability of that sergeant and whole shift of incident reports have to be reviewed so it, it's not it, so sometimes there's a little lag there and so that those incident reports don't go into the system as an official incident report until it's been approved so we do want to make sure that that so the example that the the, um, the member of the press was citing about they looked at the arrest from the night before, and you go and you look for the incident report, that incident report might not be available yet to Crime Information Services Division. So especially if it's a pretty, like if they were arrested at 11 at night and it's 6 a.m., you know, there could be an issue there.
3: Got it. Right, last question, and I actually heard this from a couple of journalists who, when they just texted me about, hey, ask this question. So, uh, <laughs> Basically, the so the chief gives a report at the commission, the police commission meetings. Um, So that you could find that, or it's it's noted on the police commission agenda, but it's not anywhere else on the crime dashboard. or, Or is there a way to at least link out or show the video? I mean, I think it's more like he just gives an oral report, right? So is there a way to like link to a video of that, or or have like a AI transcript of it, or something, so people can hear what he says?
0: Um, I mean, we can look into that for sure. I think that um, a lot of that, a lot of those incidents are reflected in the comp stat reports that are online. So um, that is also one source of, of that information. I thought you were going to ask me some questions that everyone was going to go to sleep, too, if I gave the answer, <laughs> so that, <laughs> that was better. <laughs>
3: well, great. Uh, any questions from my colleagues?
6: Thanks so much. Um, i I want to just ask my understanding about police reports and information is that there's an if I recall correctly, there's a ninety day sunset. In other words, there's a period of time for criminal record information when it is disclosable, and then that disclosability vanishes that's that's the the guidance that I recall getting. Probably, Probably know better than I do. The city in this attorney's case. office, <laughs> it, and I may ask um, Joe Fitzgerald Rodriguez to to answer this also. But before you, before you go, um, is there, are we done with the transfer from the Uniform Crime Reports to NIBRS to the, the National Incident Based Reporting System?
0: Uh, unfortunately, no. Okay. So um, some of many of the issues that we were, you know, if, well, a good. Smattering of the issues that you all have surfaced will actually um, help be resolved by our NIBERS implementation. So now the records management system that I was referring to is the system that gets us to NIBERS compliance. That system, we are in the configuration stage, which then which just means we're setting up the system to then be tested. Um, and so that the testing phase begins next year, July next in 2024 and then uh we move and that's about a year-long process and then because making sure it really works and then uh we would go to um uh we go live and and have an initial phase of uh training and all of that that sorry i'm getting that backwards we would have training and then go live uh and that's about another nine months okay Oh, and certification by the state, of course. So that's when we get to, and that takes six months as well.
3: Great.
6: Thanks so much. Could I, would it be okay if I, I have, for the society professional journalists, I have some interest in um, just exploring your, um, some of the challenges that you're running into. Um, you know, I assume some of this, what we're talking about here, is making sure that, um, members of the fourth estate have access to data trends and crime data and those kinds of things. But I also know that a a large portion of what you do is case specific and individual specific. Mm -hmm. And I was curious if you or your members run into the same sort of quarry issues, meaning criminal offender record information that doesn't really give and actually denies visibility to um, somebody who might be getting prosecuted multiple times or getting arrested multiple times—is this something that you're encountering in El- in San Francisco? Uh, yeah, you know,
4: event? I mean, you know, we so heard a lot from our members, um, but also in my own experience, you know, certainly, you know, we—I was reporting on a story with uh, Han Lee from the SF Standard, who you may all know. Okay. Uh, we were looking at uh, attacks against the Asian American community and trying to follow up on the cases and see, well, where are the cases now? What's happening now? But trying to get a holistic view of the people who are involved in those cases, very difficult. And being in and out of the court in order to just look at the simple records that are available online other places um, makes it more difficult. And that lag time in getting those records, also difficult. So there's a lot of elements of this. Thank okay. you for asking that. But we, one thing I also wanted to add, and I neglected to say before, is we're very cognizant of the right to be forgotten and the right of uh, you know, people who are accused to be able to wipe their records. And so we understand also that people need have those rights and we definitely want to be cognizant of that balance.
6: Okay. Thank you. Great, thanks.
1: I have just a quick question for Catherine McGuire. First of all, thank you, uh, Vice-Chair Guardio, for this incredible hearing. It's uh, so important, and there's so many unanswered questions and uh, so much more to do on this. I just, um, with regard to justice, which is something that I have been um, looking at for quite some time now and talking to the city administrator about and getting updates, I'd just like to understand what is your understanding of the policy objectives of justice and everything that justice is supposed to be
0: doing? So... My understanding is uh, it's, I mean, so I think the justice program is in the midst of an evolution. So um, justice, when it was introduced however many decades, decades ago, um, when I started with the controller's office 18 years ago, I, the justice program had been in place for almost 10 years. So, and I was like, why, why is it taking so long? So, <laughs> back then, right? So, um, my, and my understanding, though, was just to link data, data so that they could share information across systems. That had, and that's done. And also took a long time. Um, and now and when it was a justice project um, that was the goal as far as I understood now all of these independent sorry I'm, I'm I won't I'll try not to digress too much because I have strong feelings about this program um, the program itself now is now a program and it needs to become uh, not only maintain those connections uh, between agencies but I, I think um, the goal is it might need to be bigger. And I think that the program needs guidance on what that looks like.
1: I would agree with that. And in terms of the questions that have been asked today, are those questions and objectives that are discussed in justice meetings? I know that there's, you know, the meetings are online and the minutes are online. Um, It just, it's hard to really get a sense of whether or not you all and the agencies participating in those meetings are grappling with the types of things we are and what are. Um, journalists and what our constituents are able to um, you know what they have access to and I'm just wondering if in those meetings you are grappling with those same types of questions.
0: I would say yes. I would say that what um, so I, I attend two or three of the work group meetings on a regular basis So try to make as many as I can. The um, and we have two chairs of those working groups here uh, so the the I, I think what we grapple with most often and what has um, has where we are now is that direction is a little bit more substantive understanding of where are we headed um, the the I know that we're doing work that is sort of, or the work groups are looking at and collaborating with um, the city administrator on the things that are spelled out in the bylaws and the, and the justice founding documents. And so kind of going through that, but to what end? And so that, that's where the guidance is, is needed, I think. Great, thank you so much.
3: Yeah, and thank you, Chair Stephanie, for uh, bringing up justice again. And for viewers who might have missed my opening remarks, justice is the internal data sharing system between public safety agencies. Um, this hearing was about the public-facing data that we share with the public and with journalists, uh, but the justice data sharing is vital, um, and it warrants its own hearing. And so I think uh, the last time the Board of Supervisors had a hearing on justice was in 2017. Um, So it's been six years. Uh, Justice was started in 1997, and tens of millions of dollars later, we're still working on it. So I look forward to maybe we can do another hearing just on justice. Um, uh, I think at this point, we can now go to public comment.
2: Thank you, Madam Chair, Mr. Vice Chair. Uh, We will now take public comment on agenda item number two. Do we have anyone joining us here in the board chamber who has public comments on this discussion? Please come forward to the lectern. Seeing none, I understand that we have one caller connected remotely. Could we please have comments from that caller? And, caller, if you are connected and you've heard that your line has been unmuted, that means it is your opportunity to provide your comments. We may have one unattended line connected to our meeting. Everyone, please be patient for a moment while we figure out what's happening with that caller. SFGovTV, are we still connected to that caller? Let's uh, unmute that caller once again, so that they can hear that their line has been unmuted, and then I'll begin their time when I hear their voice. Okay, well, it appears that this line is uh, unattended, and otherwise, Madam Chair, I don't see that we have any further callers in the queue.
1: Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Public comment is now closed.
3: Sure. I'd like to thank all the speakers and my fellow committee members for this important discussion today. It's clear we need to understand and learn more. Um, we talked about justice and that it warrants its own hearing. But for the purposes of this hearing, um, I think it will be beneficial for people to hear from the sheriff's department and the courts at a continuation of this public hearing on the topic. So at this time, I'd like to make a motion to amend the hearing request to strike from the long title the words and the Mayor's Office of Innovation, and instead, after the comma, add the Superior Court of California, County of San Francisco, and the Sheriff's Department.
1: So moved, can we have a vote on that?
2: Thank you, just catching up with my notes. So I'm hearing that this is a motion to amend the hearing title to remove the Mayor's Office of Innovation as a reporting agency and to add the Superior Court and the Sheriff's departments. That's right. On that motion offered by Vice Chair Ngardio. Vice Chair Ngardio. Aye. Guardio. aye. Member Dorsey. Dorsey, aye. Chair, Stephanie. Aye. Stephanie, aye. Madam Chair, there is no opposition.
1: Thank you, Mr. Clerk. And, and what would you like to do?
3: One, and now I'd like to make a motion to continue this item as amended to the call of the chair.
1: We have a roll call vote. On
2: please. the motion to continue as amended to the call of the chair. Vice-chair Gardio.
3: Aye.
2: Gardio, aye. Member Dorsey. Dorsey, aye. Chair Stephanie. Aye. Stephanie, aye. Madam Chair, there is no opposition once again.
1: Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Do we have any other items before us today?
2: There is no further business.
1: Thank you, this meeting is adjourned.
2: Thank you.